Good afternoon. The time is 2 o'clock. Welcome to Vox Pop for this Tuesday, February 27th. I'm Ray Graff. Joining us once again to talk about recent events, developments, and technologies in the field of climate change and alternative energy research is Dan Delury, Senior Fellow for Energy and Climate at Vermont Law and Graduate School. Dan has over 25 years' experience, including as an executive with utilities and clean energy companies. Climate question? Question about green energy? Give us a call, 800-348-2551, 1-800-348-2551. You can also email us at voxpop at wamc.org. Voxpop at wamc.org is the email address, and the number is 800-348-2551. Dan Delury, your climate change calls coming up on Vox Pop after the news. Hello again. Welcome back to Vox Pop, WAMC's live afternoon call-in talk show. I'm Ray Graff. It's time to talk climate change and alternative energy solutions with Dan DeLore, Senior Fellow for Energy and Climate at Vermont Law School and Graduate School. Dan has over 25 years' experience, including as an executive with the utilities and clean energy companies, and has presented, presented, not prevented, at congressional hearings, federal and state agency hearings, and White House special events. A U.N.-accredited delegation head to the U.N. climate change meeting known as COP. Dan is considered a pioneer in developing content, policy, and programs that combine climate change with new electricity technologies. The number is 800-348-2551, 800-348-2551. Or you can email us at voxpop at wamc.org. Dan Delory, welcome back. How has your winter been? It's been good. Uh, thanks for having me back, uh, Ray. It's always good to be here. Hot day today, eh? It's a little warm out there. Okay, so we'll take that under advisement. <laughs> hey, what are you most concerned about at the moment? I mean, the thing that I'm sort of focused on or have my eyes on is what I call blinking. What do you mean? And by that, I mean that a lot of people, whether they be countries or companies or whatever, have made pledges uh, that they will reduce their carbon emissions by a date certain, by a percentage certain, and all of that. And pledges are easy to make. I mean, it's all pro forma. And, you know, you don't have to really um, prove that you've met it until that year rolls around. And, um, you know, the U.K., for example, has pulled back significantly. And the U.K. has has done a lot in terms of um, uh, climate mitigation programs. But as soon as rates go up a little bit, or certain political sectors begin to complain, then it becomes a political football. And, you know, as I've talked about before, um, you know, we, we don't have really any time left to start reducing emissions. The scientists have told us, you know, what will happen when there's X amount of emissions in the air, what that means in terms of temperature increase and so on. And we've kind of used up our grace period. Uh, the Biden administration 
seems ready to blink when it comes to their f- new fuel economy standards, which yeah, were specifically electric cars. Yeah, well, designed. I mean, these are the ones for regular cars that are designed. So the increase is designed to sort of you know push people into the transition to electric, but. You know, automobiles are a political football when it comes to the auto industry and the unions and so on. And so, so anyway, that's my own term because I think that, you know, you've got to stay the course. We've run out of time to do anything other than stay the course on this. Do you think now, you know, you mentioned the political season and we are certainly in the middle of that. So depending on where you are on the political spectrum, the new Green Deal or the Green New Deal Mm -hmm. is either really good or a real disaster. And I've seen and I don't know if it was Trump or one of uh, the other Republicans who was running or running for a while say, look, you can't for the, the forcing of electric vehicles this fast is we're not ready for it number one and i'll let you address that and number two they say this is funneling a vast amount of wealth to our chief adversary china where most of the or a lot of these parts and rare earths and everything else come from so address that pretend you're on the democratic stump for a moment and address that yeah there's another issue and that is uh the chinese autos that are becoming uh uh widely sold in China and other countries, not yet here. I forget the name of the company. It goes by three letters, like BYT or something like that. And they're larger than Tesla now in terms of what they sell. But, I mean, EVs um, are, and we've talked about this. I mean, I will never say they're for everyone at this time. Uh, We sort of, I think, got the country ready to drive EVs but we didn't get the support network in place, and I'm largely referring to the chargers, we didn't get that in place to really support the EVs. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, I was just in, uh, in New York City, and, um, you know, in order to charge my car, I had to go into a parking garage and pay a parking fee to charge the car, which, you know, normally I wouldn't have to do. Well, that's New York for you. And, and I also, I was in the East Village, and I was walking down the street uh, with my dog, and I came upon a Tesla, and th- th- there was an extension cord running from the Tesla up through this tree on the sidewalk and into the third floor of the apartment building ah. that was there. And, and I've said this before as well. Um, you know, 50% of the vehicles in the U.S. don't have a dedicated parking spot. And it's going to be a while, I think, before we get to them. But if you've got a standalone house or if you've got the ability to put a charger on your house, then I think you ought to look seriously at an EV. I mean, they've got all sorts of benefits, but also you sort of don't have to worry so much about the charging thing. Now, let me just stop you there. You, sure. You've had your EV now for what? how many months? Six oh, months? About six, seven months, Okay. Yeah. You made it through most of the winter. You right. live in Vermont. It's, there was, it's been warm, but there's, there have been a number of cold snaps as well. Some of the things you see in the press, depending on where you look, say, oh, well, these cars are not handling the charging well and don't hold their charge yeah. well in the cold weather. How's it worked out for you, Dan? As a sample of one, I've had no problems. Really? But okay. I also read the stories about Chicago yeah. and what was happening out there. And uh, I'm not sure I can address that in any detail. But, yeah, I mean, but as there far as you are concerned, it worked just fine. Yeah, the only thing I will say is 
regular autos have always had problems in the cold as well. Tell me and, about it. And so we have to be careful, you know, not to go too far in trying to evaluate that balance. Yeah. But but again, I think, you know, in this, I'll just close by saying it more broadly. Uh, I mean, at this point, we know about carbon emissions. We know about global warming and climate change. So when we make individual purchase decisions, I mean, it's something, something to think about. And, and maybe you can't make a decision that is climate beneficial, but, you know, it's something to think about at this point. Because if you let's say a gas furnace versus an electric heat pump. I mean, if you choose the gas furnace when you could have done the heat pump, then you've chosen, this sounds harsh, but you've chosen to put more emissions into the air that gradually add up towards uh, global warming. Now, obviously, you know, we, we had electric heat pumps put in and Oh, electricity went real, real high. Part of you, you, you alluded to part of this in my estimation when you said the infrastructure for charging is not quite what it should be. Is the electric generation and delivery where it should be yet? Uh, where, where I'm going with this, you're still using natural gas and or, depending on where you are, coal to generate the electricity. Right. Don't we need a paradigm shift there? Yes. Emissions went down in the U.S. in the power sector, I think, one and a half percent last year. Yeah. And each year the power sector is getting cleaner, even if you add a little bit of natural gas, because wind and solar is the cheapest thing to add. I mean, from a price. And remember, you know, a lot of this is regulated. So a regulator can't approve something that's more expensive than wind and solar unless there's some other reason to. So uh, I would say the electricity infrastructure is adequate and what is being planned and developed will go alongside of the build-out of electricity infrastructure for vehicles. Hmm, interesting. Um, the EU, and I don't have the specific uh, news item in front of me, there recently has been more talk, and I think even at the UN, about more nuclear power. Is that something that Dan DeLury favors? Oh, yeah. I've talked about it on this show before. I mean, I'm definitely pro-nuclear because it's all about emissions, even though I protested against nuclear power when I was a kid in college. Yeah. No. I mean, you I— You were a kid once? I was, believe oh, it or not, yes. Hey, you know what? On that happy note, let's take a break. <laughs> we'll go down memory lane here for a moment. <laughs> Dan DeLury is our guest. 800-348-2551 is our number. Email is voxpop at wamc.org. We'll check the email bag and hit the phones in a moment. Sonny Rollins, 800-348-2551 is the number. It's Vox Pop on WAMC. Ray Graff with you. Dan DeLore joins us as he does every couple of months. Dan is the Senior Fellow for Energy and Climate at Vermont Law and Graduate School. Before we hit the email bag and then the phones, you and I were just talking about this business of electric uh, electricity delivery infrastructure, and you had a great point. Well, I mean... Um 
the U.S. has largely used more electricity every year. I mean, we are an electrified economy. Forget about electrification and that whole idea as it applies to climate change. But, you know, we're an electricity-based economy, and as the economy grows, uh, the electricity use grows. So we shouldn't necessarily expect that electricity prices will not go up as the electricity system has to expand. But then there are special cases. I just read the other day about in California where prices are going up. One of the reasons being burying power lines because of the wildfires Mm -hmm. and burying power lines. And people often clamor for this, but it's really, really expensive versus putting the lines on the towers that you see and running them across the land. The uh, number here is 800-348-2551. Dan Delury is our guest. Let's grab a couple of emails here, and then we'll go to the phones. This one is from Jerome. I live in the southwest Adirondack Park. I'm surrounded by deciduous hardwood forest. My neighbor told me that they refer to it as the asbestos forest. Wildfires don't seem to be a big problem here. Is climate change likely to change that? And I don't know how you're going to answer this, but... Well, I'm curious about... Why it would be called the asbestos because uh, it doesn't forest. burn too much. Oh. There aren't a lot of wildfires. Oh, I see. Okay, yes. all right. But, well, I think that though uh, uh, it certainly could get drier, and there might be wildfires. But anyway, not to go down that uh, path here. But I guess, um, I mean, you know, the the Adirondacks and 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 forests are um, likely going to change. I mean, we've already seen change. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has maps that show species of plants and trees moving northward as if they could walk north as the climate changes. I mean, gardeners are seeing this. You probably talked about it on the, the gardeners show. have talked about. You yep. know, there are these microclimates, and they are they have changed. And, yeah. and some of the old timers on the show, wineries, say, yeah. wineries in Europe and and here are encountering. I mean, this is a, a sure sign that things are changing. So. You know, whether the Adirondacks will change enough so that they'll change significantly, I I don't know. They could. It all depends on, you know, what happens. But, uh, I mean, the, the, the University of Vermont has done studies that show that at some point maple sugar production in Vermont won't really work anymore. Oh. And it will all be in Canada. Interesting. Okay, when's that due to I I think uh, end of this century. So we have some time still for pancakes. Yes, we do. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, this is from Aaron, who says, hey, no question. Just thank you, Dan, for your continued work on this critical issue. And that's from Aaron. Oh, well, thank you, Aaron. That's nice. Uh, this is from Dave, and I, I have no idea about this. This would be one that um, you can answer or don't answer. Seems okay. politically dicey. Dave writes, I lived in the town of Hoosick for many years. Arguably, I consider it one of the prettiest areas in our region. Beautiful views and her artistry make it Grandma Moses country. Mr. Delury grew up in the town, and I'm interested in learning more about a proposed installation of solar panels on these hills and whether he supports that idea. My understanding is that many residents of Hoosick are not supportive, and that's from Dave. Yeah, I'm wondering if I know Dave or not. But well, Hello, here, Dave, if here, I know you. Here's his but... last name. <laughs> Uh, Do you know him? Oh, I know of oh, him. Oh, okay, yeah, fair I enough. Know of All him. right. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm very familiar with these uh, projects that are happening in New York and Vermont yeah. and Massachusetts, and I know specifically the ones in Hoosick Falls. Um, let me set the stage on the ones in Hoosick. Um, 
if you're trying to find the best spot for uh, a solar farm um, and you want to do it economically, then you look for a place that's close to transmission lines and a substation. Okay. And then, you know, the other factors, obviously the orientation and, and all of that. Yeah. And so the farms being proposed in the town of Hoosick that I'm familiar with meet that first test. And so those are the first places that developers and that governments, frankly, look for um, solar to be developed. Um, but there's no question that having a, a solar farm, uh, panels, in um, a field uh, that was formerly just an open field is different. But, you know, we have to, uh, I mean, there is a property rights question, which I'll raise, uh, which I think is an interesting one, which, you know, the people who are, who have the fields that want to develop the solar farms, you know, that's kind of their property. And, and what rights do they have to use their property? I've seen some people say, well, I want to be able to look at that guy's open field. And that's great, but the, the, the guy is maintaining and paying taxes on his open field. Yeah. But, I mean, there's no question that we need solar energy and we need solar farms. There's not enough rooftop space, even including all the warehouses and all of that, um, to really get enough solar energy into the system. But I'll close with this. I mean, the whole idea... Well, don't close. We have a half an hour to go. No, just keep going, baby. <laughs> well, go, go, go. Well, no, no. But the, the idea of, uh, of any kind of energy project is that they are regulated. They can't just go up without government oversight and government approval. So wherever you are, it comes down to a proceeding whereby um, the government evaluates all of the cost and benefits. They listen to the complaints of everyone. But in the end, you know, they're seeking to make a decision that is best for the electricity system and best for climate change. Say I own that hill and say I'm right. dead set against taking away from the natural vistas that are have been there all this time. Say I own that and you are government man and you say, look, we need to put the solar power in. We're going to take this by eminent domain. Is not is that not an overreach of the federal government? I think in, in it, I think it goal. would be, but it also wouldn't happen. There's no eminent domain when it comes to electricity or even transmission lines, which makes them so hard to cite. Mm. There is eminent domain for natural gas pipelines, which is a vast difference between those two types of projects. But no, if you own the site, you simply tell the developer to go away. But um, you know, I, I, again, I'll close by saying we need solar farms. And to think that we're not going to have any anywhere is just there. Not... Are, there are a lot of places where there are solar farms. You can't and, drive around the the neighborhood or the, or the region right. without well, seeing. They're going of them. to go somewhere, and so I think the question is: if you don't like them, and you're in a situation where this one is likely to happen, then you need to look at, you know, okay, so how to make the impact less than otherwise. And a developer usually is expecting you to ask that uh, and to work with you on that. Okay. This is uh, perhaps the email of the day. 
get ready for Tuffy Dan Delury. 800-348. As opposed to all these others. You yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is a philosophical question and also a practical one. It's from Pedro. 800-348-2551. We'll get to the phones in a moment. Pedro writes, as a Gen Xer, I'm in the we're screwed camp in regards to climate change. A little tongue-in-cheek, a little facing the truth. But I'm legitimately terrified of the future for my children and the students I work with. Gen Z, Gen Alpha are going to have to shoulder much of the repercussions the current adults are creating. So my question, what good news is there for the younger generation? What can inspire them to get involved or feel any glimmer of hope? They continuously see adults disregarding their voice and future, so they give up. Not all of them, but plenty are feeling defeated, and that's from Pedro. I will add that many adults are feeling defeated too, Pedro, but uh, (laughs) go ahead, Dan. Wow. Uh, I mean, Pedro, I'm tempted to use an old expression that uh, right on because you're really hitting the biggest nail on the head, I think, when, when you raise all of those questions. Uh, most of the emissions in the atmosphere right now have gone up there in the past 30 years after we knew what was happening and what we were doing and what um, uh, you know, climate change, what, uh, the, what the impacts would be if we kept doing what we're doing, and we kept doing it. Now, Uh, There's good news in terms of we seem to be on track to do the kinds of things that will keep emissions low and avoid some of the worst-case scenarios. Uh, But when I said seem to be on track, one of the challenges, and this is another thing I say almost every day, is to do good things is not good enough, even if it's large magnitude, if the magnitude is not enough, and if the speed at which those things are done is not fast enough. Um, we've got a timeline. The scientists have given us that timeline, and if what we do to reduce emissions doesn't match that timeline, then we're on a slippery slope. So, I mean, you know, I talk with kids a lot, Pedro, and, um, you know, the the, the numbers, I think I cited them on a previous show, the numbers for climate anxiety among young people are really, really high. And, uh, you know, if you're a parent listening to this program, I would encourage you to, you know, ask your children about climate and if you Google uh, climate anxiety in children, you'll find some resources uh, that will help you do that. But, um, yeah, Pedro, it's not a pretty picture, and we all have to realize that. Uh, we're not over some cliff or tipping point uh, yet, uh, but that's not the way climate works. It's a gradual continuum of uh, things getting worse and worse, and we have to realize that. There's still plenty of time, but... Uh, Okay, well, it's nice to hear you say that. However... But not a lot of time. All right. (laughs) With all due respect, there are those, including prominent people in the press, who have basically said... You know, what was Gore's movie called? Uh, You know... Oh, Inconvenient Truth. But it came out how long ago? Oh, what about the day after tomorrow? I mean, the point is, there's been a lot of alarmism. And then when something doesn't happen by a targeted date, there's that section of the public that says, "Okay, well, this is all hooey. They're just trying to get me scared. So how do you balance legitimate concerns without frightening the bejesus out of people? Well, it's interesting. Um, First, I want to say that 
things have actually occurred faster than the scientists predicted. So it's not as though... Which things? Everything. Every mark that we've hit. Okay. Yeah. In terms of uh, uh, emission concentrations in the air, temperature, all of that. Um, you know, scientists know the equations as to, you know, what happens. If you put all the variables together, what happens? But they don't know how those variables are going to change, which dictate you know, the time at which we hit something. But I think that's important to communicate that, well, but, hey, we don't have all the answers. We but, know something not he, good is coming from but this. Here's the but other, here's the other challenge. I mean, when those things were said by Gore, or you mentioned that movie, which is a little bit never, sensational. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, well, it's a good movie to watch, actually. But I don't um, watch too many movies. But, you know, climate is the kind of thing where we have to talk about it ahead of the game. I always talk about this lag effect. We can't wait until that stuff hits the fan that no, I can't that say stuff, on. Yes, I, I have a delay. I, you, can, <laughs> you can say it, but, but it won't go over the air. But, but that's not the way this works. We can't, you know, get to the, uh, you know, to the edge and suddenly say, oh, okay, then yeah. let's just back up and, yeah. and that's not the way it works. And so it's a challenge. How do you get people to take action uh, and to prevent something really bad happening in the future. That's a tough one. So how do you do it? Well, you try and educate them to make them understand just the, uh, the, uh, the bare essentials of climate change. You know, I, I use the example all the time of you put carbon emissions in the air. They don't escape the atmosphere. They form a thick blanket around the earth that causes global warming. When there's global warming, it causes climate change. And when there's climate change, it causes all the things we talked about. Yeah. Well, we could send people to Venus and they could check that out because... Uh, yeah, I've never understood this idea. We're going to, you know, no, try no, no. and try and uh, cultivate a new planet no, instead missed, of fixing this one. You but. missed my point. <laughs> oh, Venus sorry. Is, is runaway climate change. Oh, yeah. So yeah, Venus sure. is 900 yeah. degrees. It'll melt yeah. lead on the surface. Yeah. So you could say this is what uh, a runaway climate change ultimately is. Yeah. All right, let's go to the phones. Dan Delury is our guest today, 800-348-2551. Richard in Schenectady. Richard. Yes. Hello, Dan. Hello, Ray. Hello. Hi, <clears throat> One way we can help convince people to uh, to switch over is to give them a cost savings uh, 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 promotion. <clears throat> and uh, you've had your car for electric car for six months, Dan. Yes. I've had mine for Six and a half years. Nice. Great. And so I can give you some facts and figures. I, I should mention, uh, I, I do want to talk about long-termism, too, but just briefly say, sure. say this. Uh, I told the screener I was going to talk about, heat. you said the last time you said the heat cost of heat pumps is higher than heating with natural gas. But you can offset that by getting an, an EV, and if you can't afford to buy one, you can lease one. And you'll be saving money because of the cost of gas is, is uh, much more than the cost of electricity. So my figures is, are these. I, I figure I spend about a dollar fifteen a day to charge my car. I only get about thirty to thirty-five miles uh, on a charge because it's a it's a twenty fifteen volt. But that costs about thirty-five dollars a month for electricity, plus twenty twenty dollars for gas. It's a it's a plug-in hybrid. So that comes out to $55 a month for my, for my transportation costs. Whereas before I get gas, I used, it used to be four times a month. Uh, so that was eight, 
and it's four and a half weeks in a month, so it's $90. So I'm saving $35 a month with my car as opposed to what I was spending on, on my previous car, which wasn't electric. Hmm. There's an incentive right there, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no question. You can, you know, go to these calculators on the web. Uh, uh, I always mention this uh, organization, Rewiring America. And, you know, you can figure out what your savings will be. Forget about all the other parts of the equation, but just uh, uh, gasoline versus electricity. Uh, yeah, you've got a savings every time you uh, fuel up, if you will. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the idea of long-termism, I find it's a relatively new concept to me, and I think it's a relatively new concept, uh, but very important for the idea of, uh, of uh, you know, how we have to take care of our Earth. It's, not, it's a matter of looking forward not only to what the prospects are for our kids and our grandkids, but looking forward into the future, 500 or 1,000 years or even beyond that, and, uh, and think what, what's the future going to be like. And so the oil and fossil fuels have been a major factor in the progress of our developed world. Yes. We have to stop using up and depriving these resources from future generations by cutting back on inefficient one-time uses, such as excessive transportation and as the source for heating in our homes and buildings. These are uh. non-renewable uses of it. And so have you heard of the concept before? And the, the, of yeah. you mean the, you call long termism? Well, I guess. I mean, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I understand it because of the uh, the words, but uh, I, I I do want to pick up on what you're saying about uh, you, you know fossil fuels are used in other things other than to produce energy, which is one of the reasons that no one's talking about doing away with fossil fuels completely anytime soon. And so, right. uh, but I think, you know, the, the other term I want to introduce here, which I've used before, is intergenerational legacy. I mean, my God, you know, things okay. don't stop with us when we, uh, when we go. And, you know, I think there used to be maybe more thought given to that intergenerational legacy, but we need to do it big time now. All right, Richard, we got to take a break Thanks, here. Richard. 800-348-2551. Dan Deloria is our guest. Dan is Senior Fellow for Energy and Climate at Vermont Law and Graduate School. We'll be right back. Fox Pop, there's Jeff Beck and Jan Hammer and Blue Wind. Is that that was Blue Wind, Zach, or is my memory faulty? I mean, it is faulty, but I think that's the right <laughs> song. Dan Delury is our guest today. 800-348-2551 is our telephone number. And let's see. We're going to go to Ulster, and we'll talk to Ted. Ted, you're up. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, have you uh, this, Have you heard of um, earth-massed housing, you know, like, solar mast where the sun comes in at a low angle during the winter and heats up the back wall well um, hello yeah, yeah. you know oh, he's sorry. thinking he's processing <laughs> your question no i i have i mean in the early days of solar energy it wasn't about solar electricity yeah it was about two things. It was about solar hot water. If yep. you saw panels on someone's roof, there were pipes running through them, and that was water or some other solvent. 
And then that was, you know, there was a heat exchange at somewhere in the house. Yep. But the other thing, and this is still being done in a lot of ways, it's kind of built into modern architecture, and that's passive solar. Right. And where you use the, I mean, I remember people putting like uh, barrels of water in like their outside sunroom or whatever, so that the uh, sun would come in and and heat those up, and then they would give off their heat slowly after that. So, so I think yes. it, that's what you're talking about, right? And 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 that, yeah, I there mean, there was a piece, um, CBS, um, about in April, about two years ago, about this big the whole thing out in um, New Mexico, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it's called solar biotexture, and they're known as earth ships. Okay. Yeah, that I... like a low-tech biosphere. They're made out of stuffed tires, earth ram tires. Oh, okay. Well, wonderful stuff. I've known about it for. Yeah, I'll look that up. I'm not familiar with that, uh, Ted. So earth thank ship. you. All right. Well, okay. thanks, Ted. Appreciate the call. Eight hundred three two three. No, that's the fun drive. <laughs> Darn it. I did it once yesterday, too. Uh, 348-2551 is our telephone number. Dan Delory is our guest today, and it is uh, climate change and new energy technologies. And we've got several emails that have come to my regular email box, kind of throwing me off here. This one is from Jay. Nate Lewis, who teaches at Caltech, did an in-depth study of all renewables and says, even if we tapped all viable areas with renewables, such as tide, wind, geothermal, etc., etc., only solar is viable to the scale of human needs, something like 15 terawatts, which sun gives in an hour. We'd have to build a solar plant every day for the next 20 or 50 years, for example. Any, any comments on that? Uh, the first comment is that there's a phrase that has been used for years now by the fossil fuel industry and their backers, and it's called all of the above, meaning that, you know, yeah, sure, we let some solar and wind in, but, you know, you still got to use all of this fossil energy. So let's take away the fossil energy and just focus on all of the renewable energy or the emissions-free. It's still a case of all of the above. I mean, you still want to look for what's best suited. I mean, go back to the Hoosick Falls solar farm example. You want to look for, you know, what is the best place for which kind of technology, and you want to use appropriate technology. Um, So when you look at all of those together, you know, I I can't... um, give out any specific numbers to refute what you talked about no. from Caltech. <laughs> but I I mean there is enough to get us a long way. And remember, and, and this I want to talk about natural gas power plants for just a second sure. here. Because natural gas power plants are still being built, and a lot of them were built in the past uh, um, 10 to 20 years, even when we knew that they were a fossil fuel. It's just that they only emitted half the amount of CO2 that coal and oil did. But the methane problem is larger, and we now know that methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. But 
remember, when a natural gas plant, or when anything, I mean, when you buy a car, you know, these are long-lived assets. A natural gas power plant, once it goes in, it's going to be on the system producing electricity for the next 20 to 30 years. And so, you know, so, so, you know, there, we have to balance it all out, but we shouldn't look at renewables as not being adequate enough to meet our needs in the future. Dan Delury is our guest, senior fellow for energy and climate at Vermont Law and Graduate School. The number is 800-348-2551. Jerry's in Hancock. Jerry, you're on. Yeah, we got uh, 10 windmills over here in Hancock, and I've been watching them. And some days you'll, you'll have two of them working. Some days you'll have three. Sometimes there's five. Now, if they got 10 of them, why are they only running a certain amount of time? I can only answer that question, Jerry, in in general terms, based on my general knowledge of the electricity system and wind turbines. I mean, there are always maintenance issues, but sometimes, uh, now let me start differently. Um, As I think is obvious when you think about it, the electricity demand on the electricity system fluctuates constantly. It fluctuates from minute to minute. Um, it it uh, is, is usually very low in the middle of the night and very high in the middle of the day. And so that's why, and not to get too much into weeds here, that you have uh, an electricity system operator has a bunch of different types of resources that they call upon in order to meet the particular demand. And they always pick the one that is next cheapest if they have to add more electricity to the system. Okay, now back to wind. Um, wind is a variable resource, okay? It, I mean, solar is a variable resource. Um, even though you get some solar production on a hazy day or whatever, you don't get as much, obviously. But with wind, sometimes they have to think of it as feathering back where they have to shut down um, a wind turbine because they don't have the need for it. And that may go back to the contract that they have for those wind turbines. But And it's not like they're firing up something else. They just don't need as much electricity. Yeah. So, so, so I don't know what's happening. So, is this a storage hand- issue? That seems like a, a waste. Well, of it's wind. all a storage issue. I mean, that's the other thing. I should have added storage in my answer to our last caller because, you know, we have to assume and we have to make it happen that we have massive amounts of storage on the system, so that when the sun is out and when the wind is blowing, we're capturing all that and yep. using it later. Right. And also, I, and let me go back to EVs, because the other thing I don't think people see coming is your EV, about five years from now, and some cars do it now, is going to be a battery for your house. You're yeah. going to fill up your EV, and if your power goes out, you're going to suck electricity from your EV. I've seen those commercials. Have you tried that with your vehicle? I, my, mine won't do okay. it. You know, Not all will do it. How long can I power my uh, house with, with well, a, that's with a, a Ford F-150 electric? That, well, you know. I mean... Enough. <laughs> or how, well, I don't. If know. only the callers could see the cynical look. I'm no, no. From, oh. I mean, I see the commercial. I say, wow, that's yeah. that's pretty amazing. Yeah. But how long could it last if, if the power was out for a long time? How much can I power? Not more than a day. Interesting. And, and again, it's limited, a great concept. Though. Limited use. Yeah. I mean, it's all math in terms of how much power and what you draw. All right, let's go back to our phone lines with Dan Delury. Joy is in Saugerties. Joy. 
Oh, hello. Hello. Hi. 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 Um, I'm calling up. Uh, we have an EV6. We've had it for two years now from Kia. But we're planning, this is the first time we're planning a long trip down to Florida. And it's so hard to find any electric chargers that are over 150. Most of them are like 12, 6, 10. Isn't there, shouldn't there be like a minimum when they put these things up? Um, wow, Joy. There, there, there should be. I mean, what Joy is referring to is the fact that there are, I mean, we'll talk about where the charges are in a moment, but the types of chargers, there are three types, uh, level one, level two, and level three. Level one is basically running an extension cord out from your house. Uh, level two, there's a wide range of voltage in any given charger that's available. And, and that's what Joy was also just referring to yeah. when she used those numbers. And then there's the fast chargers, which can give you a full charge in like a half an hour. Mm. So back to the idea of, you know, have we done EVs right? And were we, you know, we, we talked about the EV cars and we talked about the range, but the chargers themselves. I mean, the, the New York State Thruway right now has no chargers. I just came up it. Really? Yeah. I mean, they're going to be there. That's part. That's that's part of the. That's part of the new uh, rest stops that are getting totally rest revamped stops. along yeah. the along the thruway. But I mean, Joy, uh, there are apps, and I don't know how an EV6. I mean, in my car, the map shows me where the charges are coming up, and it shows me, you know, what I should shoot for in terms of you know, filling it up. But, but again, the, the, the time that you take to charge depends on how powerful that charger is. So you can find that out. I hope there's a a way to do that simply and not have to, you know, spend too much time plotting that out. But we try to find Electrify America because they gave us mileage through Electrify America when we bought the car. Right. But, and those are the only ones that are really 350s. I wish they would um, uh, do the Teslas. I wish they would uh, retrofit the, fit the te- Teslas. Yeah, the, Tesla has done a deal with a lot of the manufacturers um, to be able to allow those manufacturers to use their chargers. I don't know whether Kia was part okay. of that or not. Well, Joy, it sounds like you're parachuting, so we're going to let you go there. 800-348-2551 is our number. Dan DeLore is our guest today. And let's go to Zach in Hillsdale. Another Zach on this program. You're on. Hey, can you hear me? Yep, go ahead. Hi, I have an answer for the caller who previously asked about the Adirondacks and fire potential. Um a 2008 study by uh, two authors named Nowaki and Abrams, uh, they suggest that with the increase of kind of northeast hardwood forest mm-hmm. replacing the Adirondack forest conditions uh, at the local scale, you know, those, those microclimates that you mentioned, they are expected to get wet and get cold and dry, or rather cold and uh, moist. Uh-huh. And so there's an expected loss or decrease in fire potential across okay. the Northeast. Interesting. Um, and so the way to prevent that with climate change would be prescribed fires. Uh, prescribed fires sequester carbon. They promote biodiversity. 
uh, and you know they're going to prevent severe wildfires if and when one of those occurs. So just thought huh. I'd get that out there. Yeah, thanks, Zach. Uh, I mean, I I that makes sense as you laid that out. Um, I, I'm looking at the clock, and I'm going to do a quick plug for my newsletter because a lot of the things that I've discussed come out of what I write about every two weeks. So you're just going to stop the show and do a plug. Apparently, well, yes. Apparently, you're and, in charge now, so, so go right ahead. So if you email to Dan, no period in between, D-E-L-U-R-E-Y-D-A-N at gmail.com, uh, I'll put you on the list. Cool. Do it one more time. Uh, Delury. Dan at gmail.com. I got to say, I love, I love getting that in the inbox. It's really, well, thank you. it's really entertaining and informative and at times terrifying, but still, <laughs> but still all in good fun. Yeah, and I write it like I talk on this show. Yeah, so, so it's pretty cool, yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, all right. There, here's an email for you. I don't know. I don't know anything about this. This is from Peter. Any truth to the suggestion that cleanup of emissions by ocean-going vessels caused higher global temperatures due to reduced atmospheric particulates? I, I never uh, heard that suggestion. Okay. Maritime emissions is a big slice of the overall emissions pie. Yeah. Now, he's saying that because... Because any truth to the suggestion that cleanup of emissions by ocean-going vessels caused higher global temperatures due to reduced atmospheric particulates. I've got to think about that one. because so the particulates I, would theoretically block the sun? I don't know exactly well, what we're talking about I mean, about the first there. thing that occurs to me is, is uh, particulates is one of the sort of climate engineering grand... Uh, you know, ideas to put more particles, almost like, you know, seeding the atmosphere yeah. to allow, you know, less heat to come in and so on. But I don't think that's what he's talking about because he that would be the reverse, I think, of what he's he's talking about, why it increased. And so I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just okay. not I'm not clear on that. Well, I'd, I'd have to think about that. All right. So you're you're now 0 for 1 on that. Let's <laughs> see if we can even it up here. This is from Vivian. 0 for 1 on the program. It, no, on, on, on these particular emails. Oh, okay. Here's another one now. you got a chance to go all right. 1 and 1. Okay. Vivian writes, what does Dan think about article in today's times that the tipping point for changing direction of Gulf Stream may happen as soon as 2025 with vast consequences for climate in Europe and northeastern New York? Or U.S., I should say. Yeah, um, that's a scary article. I, I mean, it's been written about a little bit in the past few weeks in various places. And, you know, as I said to Ray, I don't know whether this was on or off air before, but, you know, we shouldn't think of climate change as having a big tipping point. Like, you know, we talk about trying to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 Celsius. Yeah. But, you know, that's not a hard stop. I mean, but if we don't make 1.5, then we should shoot for 1.6 because it just gets worse and worse. But, you know, in in the case of, I, I'm sorry, what's the, uh, oh, we're talking about. The New York Times Yeah, yeah, sorry, the, the ocean the current, Street. sorry. Yeah, we have uh, about a minute here. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, and so for people who don't know, I mean, you know, a lot of the weather and climate, for that matter, around the world is affected by ocean currents. The yeah. Gulf Stream, I think, being the one that Americans are maybe most familiar with. Right. But these rely on temperature differentiation in the ocean and other different factors. And so if that should cease or get out of balance or diminish, then 
Yes. You, I mean, the, the theory that scientists are talking about makes sense to me and I think to most people. So that is, you know, when I said before to you that um, there's not a big tipping point, but there are little tipping points. You know, I don't and think you that's would, a, brought this up at all on the air. This was all oh, okay. in, in the pregame, <laughs> and which is basically the same but, as the show, except there's more swearing. You know, that's the bottom but there line. But are, there are individual tipping points like that that are kind of scary and should be yet another reason that we act uh, with all due haste. All right, man. We'll leave it there. Once again, if people want to get your uh, blog and your, your email blast, how do they do that? Uh, Dan D-E-L-U-R-E-Y-D-A-N, at gmail.com. Fantastic job, and we will see you very soon, yeah? All right. I always love it. Thanks. So- Support comes from the Lake George Land Conservancy, Bolton Landing, New York, protecting the forests, wetlands, shorelines, and ridges that protect Lake George permanently. Projects, events, and dues at lglc.org. And Ambrose Electric Standby Power, an electrical contractor providing sales service and installation of residential and commercial Generac automatic standby generators, serving the greater capital district for over 40 years. AmbroseLEC.com. Once again, thanks to Dan Deluria of Vermont Law and Graduate School for being here again today. Thank you for listening. Thanks for the calls. Thanks for the emails. Many apologies if we didn't get to yours. Dan will be back in a month or two. Thanks to Zach Malloy, our long-suffering engineer. Thanks to Ed Rosen, who screened the calls today. I'm Ray Graff. Tomorrow, it's Pets and Vets with Chris Dallas and Susan Sakuli. If you have an issue with the kitty or the doggy, We'll call tomorrow at 2 p.m. and uh, they'll try to help you out. Right now, stand by for something wonderful.